Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. Today we are beginning a year-long study in the Gospel of John and the life and ministry of Jesus, the most important man in the history of the world. But before we can jump into our text this morning, which is one of the most powerful uh, set of verses in the entire Bible, we need to do some background work and set up um, just what is the Gospel of John and what is this book that we are planning on studying. When we say that we are beginning to study the book of the New Testament uh, called the Gospel of John. If you don't know, the Bible is made up of 66 different books. There's Old, we call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. Basically, the simplified version is before Christ in one sense, okay, before the, I'm going to work this out, before Jesus put on flesh, because if you read the Old Testament, you find out that Jesus kind of shows up, there's kind of these hidden things that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament occasionally. Uh, and then the New Testament is all about the life and ministry and work of Jesus um, after his incarnation. And so when we say we're studying a book of the Bible, that's what it means. There's not just a chapter. The, the Gospel of John is, was its own book, its own set of writings, and we're going to begin studying that. And what is it? Well, to put it simply, the Gospel of John, like all the Gospels, all four of them, is a first-person eyewitness account from John, the son of Zebedee, who was a Palestinian Jew and a member of Jesus's inner apostolic disciples who lived with Jesus and followed Jesus during his ministry. And he was the disciple who was present at Jesus's death. It was the disciple that Jesus looked down off the cross and said, mother, mother's day here, mother, behold your son. Jesus was saying, John, take care of my mom. And Mom, treat John like a son, all right? That's the apostle John. But 
I have to say that because interestingly, when you study this book, John never actually names himself in the book. Never once. Instead, he says this in his conclusion of the book in chapter 21. Quote, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. <clears throat> so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now look at this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. So John refuses to name himself in his own book and instead chooses his own pen name. And his pen name is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He says it several times throughout the book. Anytime that he would be in the narrative, he says the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved did this, did that, did the other thing. Why? Well, when you study the Bible, you realize there's a lot in a name. Names are important. <clears throat> and John wants all of his readers to know, this Jesus that I met and I lived with and I watched die and I watched be put away and sealed in a tomb, this Jesus changed everything about me. I define my life as before I met this Jesus, and I define it, I was John the son of Zebedee, and then after I met this Jesus, now I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. My whole life has been rearranged since I met this Jesus, and now my entire identity is wrapped up in this little phrase, I am the one whom Jesus loves. That is the most true thing about me. That's how I want everybody after me to know me. It's interesting. See, one of the most spectacular things about the Gospel of John is that this book has been the best place to have a life-changing encounter with the real Jesus. It's been said to be the, a gospel that is so simple enough that a child can understand it. We probably memorized this verse over here, or one of these verses. Which one? Yeah, that one. That one was one of the first verses we probably ever memorized as a child, right? But it's also so deep and profound and complex that you can study it your entire life and never exhaust its resources. And today I'm going to try to preach 18 verses, all right? 18 verses, and as I got into it, I realized, you know me, I could have done a whole series on these 18 verses. And I get, not even, I get a half a sermon to do 18 verses because the first half, I got to set up the entire book. It is so simple and yet so profound. And historically, when a person wanted to understand who is Jesus and what can he do for my life or what's he done in the world, why is he such a big deal, the church, the first thing they said was, go read the Gospel of John. If you want to know who Jesus is, Go read the Gospel of John. So <clears throat> that's what we're going to do. We're going to read and we're going to study the Gospel of John. This book was written by John, the, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Now it's the last of the four Gospels 
to be written by Jesus' apostles, and it was most likely written toward the end of the first century, between AD 70 and AD 100. Now, it's important because Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written, and John had them. John had them in hand, and John is um, towards the end of the first century here, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he decides to write an account of Jesus' life and ministry from his unique life and perspective. So, how does the disciple whom Jesus loved interpret the life of Jesus? How did he experience Jesus and his death and resurrection? Now, each gospel account shows a unique perspective on Jesus. Matthew is written to a Jewish audience and it, it emphasizes his kingship. Mark emphasizes Jesus' servanthood. Luke emphasizes his manhood and John emphasizes Jesus's Godhood. All of the Gospels present all four of these truths, but their separate emphasis help us see Jesus in a very specific and important way to come to understand who he is in the totality of his person. So John's purpose is us, for us to see that Jesus of Nazareth, so when we use that term, we're speaking of the historical person. Jesus of Nazareth is none other than God himself. And this Jesus can change your life forever if you believe in him. This is an audacious claim that we're going to study together over the next year, and I hope you come to the same conclusion as John has. Now, writing of, of, about the Gospel of John, John Calvin said this, all four canonical Gospels had the same object to show Christ. The first three exhibit his body or his flesh. It may be per, if, it, if it may be permitted to put it like that, but John shows his soul. Martin Luther wrote, this is the unique, tender, genuine, chief gospel. He said, should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John escape him, Christianity would be saved. The gospel of John is something special. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. What does that mean? It means they are... They basically share the, the exact same stories um, all together, all of them. They're, they're shared often in a similar sequence with the same wording, almost identical wording. So they're the exact same circumstances from the life of Jesus from three different guys' perspective, three different apostles' perspective. But John did something entirely different. John had all three gospels, and John said, man, there's a whole lot more about Jesus that these guys didn't share, and I needed to share my perspective. So the gospel of John is 90%, 90% of the gospel of John is unique to this book. It's not in the other gospels. So John specifically chose to share stories from his time with Jesus that weren't in the other Gospels to purposefully emphasize for us and for the readers that Jesus was God. John writes this at the end of the book. It's important for us to remember. He says this in chapter 21, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, why would he say that? Because when you read the Gospels and you come to read all of the Gospels, one of, you're blown away by who Jesus is. You're blown, blown away by what he has done. But you're also 
you come away with a lot of questions, right? Like, I remember as a teenager reading about this and was like, what was Jesus like as a teenager? Listen, I want to know, how did puberty go for Jesus? Right? It's not, it wasn't going well for me. So I would like to know that. Guess what? Doesn't answer it. There's only one or two verses about Jesus as a teenager in the whole thing. So John tells us in his gospel accounts, listen, I'm not writing everything that Jesus did. I'm not giving you a full depiction of his life. I'm giving the highlight reel of what I think you need to know and what God wants you to know. So that means there's going to be a lot of things that we, a lot of questions that we have that aren't answered in the gospels. There's going to be a lot of things about Jesus that we wish we knew. We're not going to know. God only reveals to us what he believes that what we have to know about him, about who Jesus was, what he's, what he's done, and the most important things of his life. So the gospel writers only recorded for us what God told them to in order to reveal to us who Jesus is, what was, what Jesus did, and how that changed their lives when they believed him. Now, the last thing I will say by way of introduction to the book is this. We know, if you've been around here for any, any amount of time, gospel is taken from a Greek word, evangel, which means good news, right? So gospel means good news. But when we say the gospel according to St. John or St. Mark or St. Luke, we're, we're referring to a type of literature. We're referring to a specific genre of literature. And that I, I have to say that because we might take it for granted today. And many people do. And they, many people, um, they, they don't understand Jesus because they don't understand what John is writing here and all the other gospels as well. They were following, following normal literary patterns of their day. So if you go to school your professor or your teacher, they don't just say, write a paper on whatever and then have fun and just be real creative, right? No, they teach you exactly what format they want that paper in. They want a thesis statement or they want an introduction and they want a body and they want three to five paragraphs and then they want a conclusion and they, this is the way they want their paper. Well, John is writing, is writing in a very similar pattern from, from what scholars today call bios, bios. It was a type of literature. It was a Greek biography. And that is the format that John follows when he's writing his, uh, his, his letter, or his gospel here. So gospel is a specific type of literature, specific genre. Now I have to say that because one of the most frustrating refrains I hear often from critics and, and different people is that the Bible is just a myth. Or even the Gospels are just a myth. Joe Rogan repeats this over and over and over. He, he repeats the same stupid question over and over. And it's like, would you, would you invite somebody on your podcast that actually has an answer to your stupid question? The Bible is not a myth, all right? The Bible has not been changed multiple times over. All of that is foolishness. People say, they say things like this. It's just a common myth. Well, the Bible was written hundreds of years after the, the Gospels were written hundreds of years after the life of Jesus. We don't have any idea who wrote them. It's probably some anonymous follower of Jesus who was just making things up to make Jesus look like a God or make Jesus look like a really cool new religious figure. Listen, if that were true, just hypothetically, then that means that unnamed author would be the greatest and most popular fiction writer in history, right? More copies of this gospel have been sold than any other thing in history, anything ever in, written, in writing, okay? 
More copies of this. So he's the most best-selling fiction author in his history, and he's also the worst businessman in history because he didn't name himself, and he never made a dollar on it. So he invented the best story ever told and never made a dollar on it, right? That sounds more like a myth to me, right? That sounds more like a myth. Now listen, C.S. Lewis encountered this argument when he was alive. And C.S. Lewis, if you don't know, he was a literary scholar before he was a writer, which means he read almost every myth that had ever been written in the English language and a lot of other languages as well. He was a brilliant um, scholar. And this is, he wrote an essay in, in 1959 called Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism. And he writes this, I have the quote. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths my whole life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them <clears throat> is like this, speaking of the gospels. Of this text, there are only two possible views. One, either this is reportage, which reportage means eyewitness news, okay? Eyewitness testimony. Or else, some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. That means he invented a totally new genre of literature. If it is untrue, it must be the narrative. If it is untrue, so if the gospel's not true, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. So this type of literature, this genre, had never been invented before if it was a myth. The genre that had been invented is called Greco-Roman bios. All right? So let me just build out my case a little bit more. Craig Keener is a leading scholar. He has a PhD from Duke University. He says this, quote, most gospel scholars today view the gospels as belonging to the genre of ancient biography. So not myth, not stories, not novels, ancient biography. Both supporters and detractors now recognize this general consensus. So there are still people who don't believe the Bible is true, don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and people that do believe that Jesus is the Christ as the Son of God. But scholars have a consensus now that the type of literature is ancient biography. Okay? Arguments concerning the biographical character of the Gospels have thus come full circle. The Gospels long viewed as biographies of some sort until the early 20th century now are widely viewed as biographies again. So the Gospel of John is a first-person eyewitness biography of the life of Jesus. It is written in the same style as a Greco-Roman biography like Suetonius's Life of the Caesars. Many of my classical Christian uh, students in here, uh, you've probably read that book, or if you're, you haven't yet, you're going to read that book, all right? Suetonius's Life of the Caesars, and it's pretty messed up. I'm just going to tell you that. It's got, so this book, it's got a formal preface called a preamble. That's what we're going to study today. It's got the similar formatting, arrangement, and length to the Greco-Roman biography. So I say all that to say this. We can trust the Bible. We can trust that the Gospel of John is giving us a depiction of the real historical person, Jesus of Nazareth. We can trust what we learn here in this book. What we are going to read is written by one of Jesus' closest followers. 
A man who would live longer than all the other apostles. He would live long enough to watch all the other apostles be killed, martyred for their faith, including his older brother James. And John himself will wind up being imprisoned on the island of Patmos and writing the book of Revelation from his jail cell there. So I want you to think about it. John obviously saw some things following Jesus that changed his life forever. He he begins as a fisherman, okay? And he ends up writing one of the most profound texts ever written in the human language. I'm going to show you some of that today. That's not normal for a fisherman, I'm just telling you, right? It's my prayer that we would have a similar encounter that the Apostle John had, that we would meet Jesus in a life-changing way as we read and study this gospel account. Now, let me pray for us and we can actually get into our text this morning. Well, it's only been a half hour. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We would not know you if you had not chosen to reveal yourself to us. So we thank you for being a God who reveals himself. God, I invite you into this room today. I invite your word to do what your word does and bring light and life to men and women. Would you open our eyes to see the real Jesus? Would you help me that I am a sinner that needs the grace of Jesus to speak clearly? I can say all kinds of foolish things and incorrect things. And so I ask that you would help me say what you want me to say this morning. Think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. Let it be all of you and none of me. And Father God, we want to bring, uh, once again, we want to bring Isla Gallier before you and before your throne of grace. And we speak, we, we just ask for grace upon grace that you would heal her little body, that you would give grace to the Gallier family. They are always in our thoughts and prayers and we bring them before you now and ask that you would continue to move and and bring life to her body. Um, We thank you. We ask that you would glorify yourself to the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. All right, so we're gonna look at the first 18 verses this morning. This is called the preamble. Now it's interesting. Um, In the preamble, what what a preamble does in a Greco-Roman biography is a preamble it's kind of like this. This My kids hate this about me, but when we sit down to watch a movie, most movies, if movies that I've seen before, I'm going to tell them what to be looking for. I'm going to be tell them to be looking for the good guy, the bad guy, maybe this theme, whatever, because I want them to be connoisseurs. I want them not just to be people that sit down and gobble up whatever it is that the culture feeds them. I want them to be able to watch it and go, I don't like that. That's weird. That's wrong. I want them to be able to do that. Well, in a preamble, in a Greco-Roman biography, they would do the same thing. They're going to set up the important characters, some of them. They're going to set up the important themes, and they're going to kind of wet your uh, imagination, wet the the appetite of your imagination for the themes that are going to be be coming um, in the rest of the book. So let's get into it this morning. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in the beginning was the Word. What does that remind you of? Hopefully, that reminds you of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, 
we're coming right out of this origin series. And so John, writing thousands of years later, uses this concept to communicate something very, very important. He's saying, now this is, this is, we're going to see some spectacular things about Jesus, and they're setting us up that nothing we're going to learn about Jesus is going to be more spectacular than what we're going to learn today. All right? Here's what he's saying. If you want to know who Jesus is, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Before there was anything, Jesus was. Matthew and Luke begin their gospels with Jesus's birth. Mark starts his with Jesus's ministry. John reads these three gospels and goes, guys, you can't understand Jesus unless you go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. If you want to understand who Jesus is, You've got to go all the way back to eternity past, back before anything existed except for God. And when John writes here, so first off, we're learning right away. He's not going to tiptoe around this. He wants us to know right away, Jesus Christ is God. When John writes, in the beginning was the word, he's doing something incredibly profound. Now, first off, his primary audience was the Jews and the Greeks, okay? The Jews and the Greeks, that's the two people that were primarily John's writing to. And for the Jew, they had the Old Testament, right? And the New Testament, Jesus is simply completing the first half of the scriptures. And in the Old Testament, they would have immediately heard, as soon as John says, in the beginning was the word, they would have known exactly what he's doing there. Yahweh, God, spoke everything into existence. One of the common refrains in the Old Testament is this, and the word of the Lord came to. And the word of the Lord came to. In the Old Testament Jewish worldview, listen, the word of God was everything. The word of God was life and death. The word of God was divine. The word of God was authoritative. The word of God was life-giving. David would meditate on the word of God in the watches of the night, right? David spoke poetically about the word of God. The word of God was everything to them in the Old Testament. The reason there was something rather than nothing was because the word of God came, right? The word of God spoke light into existence. It was light bringing. So the word of God was all important to the Jews. The reason Abraham was the father of their nation was because God spoke to him. The reason Moses led them out of Egyptian slavery was because God spoke to them. The reason Pharaoh let them go was because God's word came to him in power. God's word had been revealing to their forefathers who God is, what he is doing, and what they were supposed to do since the beginning of time. So the Jew would have known as soon as John would have wrote this first little sentence here, exactly what John was saying. John was saying this historical person, this Jesus of Nazareth is none other than Yahweh God in a physical body. That was not meant to be, oh, okay. 
That was meant to be a smack your mama in the face type of statement. What? This man is God? That's that's an audacious claim. This is the claim that makes the Jews want to crucify him. This is the claim. He claims he's one with God. John's like, yes, he did. Boom, I'm going to let you know it right in my preamble. I'm not worried about it. But here's another interesting fact. Scholars say at this time, the Greeks outnumbered the Jews 100,000 to one. Okay, so the Jews were this minority group in the Greco-Roman world, and the Greeks outnumbered them 100,000 to one. And the Greeks have a different worldview, a worldview that was shaped by Greek philosophy, and at this time, it had been largely shaped by the philosophy, philosophy of Heraclitus, or Heraclitus. Now, Heraclitus was a philosopher that predated Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great. He lived about 500 years before Jesus. Heraclitus taught, now if you've ever studied philosophy, you probably know this, Heraclitus taught that the world was in a constant state of flux and change. And that there was just, when you look at the world, you study the world, you see that there's constant chaos and death and destruction and fire. There's all this disorder within the world. His famous illustration was that you never put your foot in the same river twice because you, the river is constantly flowing. And so when you put your foot in that river, the river is different than the last time you did it. And you are different. You are a different person than you were the last time you put your foot in that river. So his idea, his philosophy that there's just the world is in this constant change and flux. And so is life. But as he studied the world and saw all this chaos and change, he also saw that within the chaos, there was still an internal order. There was a structure to it. A harmony that brought order out of that chaos. And Heracles came up with this concept, listen, that the Greeks called and he called the logos, the logos. And he said that the logos was the essence of the study of philosophy. This is the whole purpose of the study of philosophy. This was the principle that held everything together. It holds philosophy together. It holds logic together. It holds reason together. It holds the world together. The logos was what brought order out of the chaos in the universe. So they would ask questions like this. What keeps the stars in the sky and on the same course so that we can trust them and navigate our ships by? What controls the seasons? Why does math and geometry always work? See, he studied the world and and found out that order and purpose is also revealed everywhere in the world. Why? For the Greeks, the answer was the logos. Plato said this about 400 years before the life of Jesus. It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, that word in the Greek, word for word in the Greek is logos. 
So John seizes onto this Greek philosophical principle and says, you've been looking for the source of rationality, the source of reason behind all things. You've been looking for the principle that holds all things together and determines the movement of the stars. Well, we found him. Or more accurately, he found us. The divine logos is none other than this historical dude who you just killed named Jesus of Nazareth. This idea went off in the Greek world like a stick of dynamite, like a long chain of a stick, sticks of dynamite. It began to change the world as they know it. Let's keep reading. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What, what, this is, oh my gosh, this is so hard. And the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Remember back in creation, God spoke everything into existence. Jesus was that word. So there is not one thing that was created, there was not one thing that was brought forth into existence that Jesus isn't the creator of. Jesus was present at creation with God the Father. Now what does that mean? At that time, Jesus was strictly a spirit. He did not have a body. Now, these are some of the building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity that I don't have time to get into this morning. But the Bible teaches that God is one God in three persons. They share the same divine essence, but they have three different expressions of that essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Jesus was with God, that means he had a relationship to God the Father, but Jesus was also God himself. Let's keep reading. He was in the beginning with God, all things that were made through him, and without him not a thing that was made that was made. In him was life. In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, as God, is life. <laughs> oh. And the life was the light of men. Remember in Genesis, when God said, Let there be light, and there was light, that meant before the sun existed, God was speaking light into existence. That's what Jesus was doing. That light gives, gives life to all men. As the sun gives its light to all living things, and there would be no life without the sun, so Jesus is life and the light of men. Now, this is an interesting metaphor here. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is light. It's interesting because later in this chapter, you're going to see that some people, it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That means, and it's going to tell us later on, some people loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, why is that? Well, light is an interesting metaphor because the light shines in the darkness. Well, how do people feel about the light? Well, honestly, it usually depends on what you're doing in the dark. If you are lost in a forest and you are bumping around in the night trying to find your way home, a light is a welcome blessing. You love the light. A light will save your life. But if you're a criminal breaking commandments and sinning in the dark, then you hate the light, right? 
Well, Jesus is that light. He exposes people. He can see through them all the way down to their motivations. He can see into their heart. He can see into their mind. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is God. And so when he comes into the world, some people love him and some people hate him. And it really depends on what they're doing in the dark. Some, when their sins get exposed, will turn to him and embrace him as savior and he will light up their darkness and change their life and forgive their sins. And some, when they get exposed, will run and hide from the light. John, the light turned on for John and John confessed his sin and embraced Jesus Christ as savior. For most of the rest of the Jews and many of the Greeks, they will choose to despise him and run from him and will eventually crucify him on a Roman cross. So right away here in the preamble, we are being prepared for some of the major themes in the Gospel of John. These are some major themes that we're going to see. There's a battle going on between light and darkness. We're going to see that over and over. There's a battle going on between life and death. There's a battle going on between the acceptance of that light or the rejection of that light and life. And all of this are going to be dominant themes throughout the gospel. John is setting the stage here for us. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He's saying no matter how dark it seems, the light has won. The light will win. John then transitions a bit and introduces another important character, Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is John the Baptist or John the baptizer. And one of the unique features of John the Baptist that we're going to learn and you learn as you study him. Number one, he was an absolute wild man. He was uncontrollable. He wore crazy clothes. I'm sure he yelled a lot. He probably is my spirit animal. Okay, I'm just gonna tell you that. I like John the baptizer, but John the baptizer had a radical humility. So when people come to John and they're like, you've got to be the savior. You've got to be the guy. You're getting this following. He, he was adamant, straight up in their face. I'm not the guy. I'm just the one pointing to the guy right? I'm not the guy. I'm just the one pointing to the guy. Jesus is the guy. So that's what John was basically a big old signpost that just meant to point to the Savior. He was prophesied to come and he did, he did come. I'm going to keep reading because I am running out of time. Verse 9, the true light, this is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. This is meant to boggle our mind, okay? This, Jesus Christ spoke the world into existence and then he entered it. How did, I don't know. He's God, that's how. So the, the answer is, do you really believe Jesus walked on water? What a joke. I believe he spoke the world into existence and then entered into it. Like, I think that's way more audacious claim than he walked on water. If he decided to think up water and then speak water, I guess he can also decide to walk on it if he wants to. He invented the stuff, right? 
He was in the beginning speaking into existence. This is meant to blow our mind about who Jesus is. That's why no one who rightly understands Jesus and rightly understands the gospel can have a mild reaction to Jesus. You can't have a mild reaction to this guy. John is telling us right away, he's everything. He's the divine word that the Jews have been looking for. He's the divine logos that the Greeks have been looking for. He's the one that's at the center of all creation, holding all things together. He's holding you together right now. You can't have a mild reaction to this guy. Keep reading. Yet the world did not know him. Whoa. Came into his own world that he created and the world looked at him and said, nah, nah. Take him or leave him. He came to his own, speaking of the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. We're going to pick this theme up. Most of the Jews reject Jesus. But to all who did receive him, look at this, who believed in his name, so who believed Jesus was who he says he was, the son of the living God, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus came into this world offering a whole bunch of spiritual orphans the ability to be adopted into the family of God. Everyone that's had their father abandon them, everyone who's had a broken family, everyone who's been wounded and lost and has sinned and rebelled, Jesus Christ came to offer you a new family. You can be adopted in the family of God. You can know God as your father. Well, how can that happen? I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm foolish. I'm small. All these things. Yes, Jesus came as the perfect man, as your representative, just as we send ambassadors over to different countries to negotiate on our behalf. God sent Jesus Christ as our ambassador to come negotiate on our behalf. And Jesus lived a perfect life that you all failed. He was the perfect son to the father. And then on top of that, he took the punishment that we deserve for our death and rebellion on the cross. And he satisfies the wrath of God. And now because of Jesus Christ, we can have the truth from God and we can have grace from God. Jesus is, oh, the big word here, philosophical word is the axis mundi, the, the, the very center of the universe where everything is pulled together. Jesus is everything. And if you know him, you can have life in his name and you can be adopted into this eternal family of God. Verse 14. And the word, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't finish 13 who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A theme of being born again is going to come up here. You can be born again by the Spirit. God is Spirit, and God can give spiritual life to you who are spiritually dead. Verse 14. And the Logos, the Word, became flesh. This is where we get the word incarnation, or the idea or the doctrine incarnation. Incarnation means to put flesh on something, Right? Remember when you, get, when you go to the store, you can get chili or you can get chili con carne with meat, right? Con carne, incarnation. Jesus, the divine spirit, put on flesh and it says dwelled among us, but the actual Greek there is pitched his tent among us. And the whole idea is to, meant to get the Jews to go back to the tabernacle that was traveling around with them, that God, they would put up the tent and God's presence would come in. So here's the idea. Jesus, 
in the, the historical person of Jesus Christ, the eternal God moved into the neighborhood. The eternal God moved into humanity, became one with us. This is the most amazing event in all of history. See, God is not stopping, he's, or he's not stepping out of his divinity, but rather he's adding to his divinity humanity. Do you understand that? Not really. I don't know how that works. I'm not God, right? The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy son of God took on a human nature and human body and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time in one person, 100% God, 100% man. The God in Jesus, the God who built everything, crawled inside his own creation in Jesus. Keep reading. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Here's what it is. Those who walked and talked with Jesus, they knew he was different. Even his enemies hated him. They, his enemies will constantly say, you're casting out devils because you're possessed by the devil. Jesus was like, how's that logically work, right? I don't think so. What? They recognized there was something unique about Jesus. They saw his glory. when he, The disciples, when he walked on water, when he multiplied the fish and loaves, when he healed people, when he taught, there was an authority to his teaching that changed people. Everyone knew this man was special, that they saw his glory. As of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What does that mean? John, the cousin of Jesus, was older. He was born first before Jesus. And the first time their mothers meet, uh, in utero, John, the baby jumps inside John. Like John was responding to the word of God in utero, right? And he's saying, he I know he was born after me, but he actually came before me. His own cousin, right? his own cousin saying this about him. We'll keep going. Verse 16. For from his fullness, his godhood, his godlike nature, his fullness, that Jesus has everything we need in him. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Every single thing we need. Jesus isn't just, you know, a one-stop one shop. Right? He doesn't do, he, we can keep going back to him over and over and over and he never gets tired of us. He never gets frustrated at us. He gives us everything we need, grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He he who is at his father's side. He has made him known. Here's the idea. God was spirit. God spoke his word. That's the only way you could know him. But now Jesus, the word, put on flesh so you and I could learn what God is like. God has always been like this. We didn't understand him. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the God with flesh on. 
And so Jesus comes to reveal to us what the God who created everything is actually like. Now, these 18 verses are some of the most important words that have ever been written. John, want, John wants us to know in no uncertain terms that Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just an insightful moral teacher. He was not just a leader of a new religion. John gives us here in this preamble what he will later prove throughout the book. He is saying the coming of Jesus into our world is the most important thing to have ever happened in our world. It is not an overstatement to say that Jesus changes everything. Why is that profound? A man who never owned a home, never got married, never held public office, never wrote a book, never led an army, never ruled an empire, never had a bank account. A man who led a small group of men around Galilee to give you context for Galilee or Nazareth, think Mount Joy. Okay? He leads a group of people around Mount Joy for three years. Twelve people. After three years, he's got twelve followers. Actually, one's a devil. He's got eleven. He's got eleven followers after three years. Not that successful of a ministry. He is then publicly condemned as a heretic for claiming to be the son of God and is crucified on a Roman cross and then buried in a rich man's grave. Why are we still talking about this guy from Mount Joy 2,000 years later? Thousands of miles away from where it actually happened. Because Jesus was actually who he claimed to be. He wasn't just a man. He was the God-man. He was the Word. He was the divine Logos. He proved it by His life and miracles. He proved it by His powerful preaching and teaching. And He proved it by rising from the dead and showing Himself resurrected to over 500 eyewitnesses. And what happened after that? Those eyewitnesses who were present at his crucifixion, who abandoned him in his darkest moments, those cowards, those discouraged and fearful followers became courageous and bold. What changes? Listen, it takes a, it takes a lot to t turn a coward into somebody courageous. It is not something easy to do. So what turns a coward into somebody who's willing to die for their faith? Seeing a resurrected person, that's something that'll do it. They took this message of life and light to all their neighbors, no matter how crazy it sounded. And what happened? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was demolished. The light went out on the Jewish religion and Christianity began to spread. The philosophy of the Greeks was shown to be nothing more than foolishness compared to the message of Jesus. And Greek philosophy is eventually conquered by the divine logos and Christianity spreads across Rome and out into the rest of the world. Why? Because Jesus is everything. Jesus is God. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is the one who is holding everything together at the center of the universe right now. Jesus is our gravity. Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is the light. Jesus is life itself. And his grace and truth are the meaning of life for us. 
You will never be able to hold those two things together if you don't know this Jesus perfectly. And personally, I'm sorry. What does that mean for us? Really simply, personally. It's going to sound cliche. It's going to sound simple. Jesus is what you're looking for. It's not more money. It's not another spouse. It's not more influence. not more power. It's not more rest. It's not more kids. It's not less kids. It's Jesus. He is the answer to all of your problems. He is the reason for living. And there's only two types of people in this world. Those who reject the light and those who receive the light. He came to his own, his own people, the Jewish people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is an invitation from the God at the center of the universe. The divine logos is speaking to you now and inviting you in to know him, to be one of his children, to be in his family. To give you eternal life with him. What is eternal life? Eternal life is I know the reason for life. I know the meaning of life. I know what's at the center. I know what's behind it all. I know him. His name is Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. He is the light and life of all men. I know him right now by faith, by believing in his name, and I'm going to come to know him greater and greater and greater ways all out my life. And then one day when, I'm died or when, I'm die, when I die or when Christ comes back again, I'm going to know him with my eyes and not just by faith. Eternal life, knowing God, begins now and goes on and echoes into eternity. And the word of God is here in this room this morning and invites you to know him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are that word. I pray even right now you give faith to people to believe it. As we come to share the Lord's Supper together this morning, oh man, we're invited to have a meal with the meaning of the universe, the one in the control room of the universe, the one who is the center of all things. We get to have a meal with the divine logos. Thank you for that. Would you feed us? Feed us by faith. The night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. You took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. We are called to eat and drink of this meal as often as we come together that it proclaims your death until you return again. And so we eat this meal as believers in faith this morning. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. And amen.